Blog Talk Radio. Hey, Mike, I am super excited about our broadcast today. Oh, yeah? What do you got? Well, Mike, today we are going to have a provocative and candid discussion about empowering and engaging our youth. You know, Mike, I'm glad that we have people like our guests today who are on the front lines each day making positive impact in the lives of our youth. Mike, she's literally one of our nation's finest teachers. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and I just want to inform our audience that you can follow us on Twitter at MTBrown98 or on my Facebook page, Michael T. Brown, where you can chat live and even ask our guests some questions. Mike, why don't you go ahead and introduce us, introduce her for us. Kimberly A. Worthy is an educator, author, lecturer, and workshop facilitator and currently serves as a member of the Board of Directors of Howard University Middle School of Mathematics and Science in Washington, D.C., where she has taught social studies and English language arts. A tireless advocate for educational excellence in urban schools, Kimberly was honored in 2009 with the coveted District of Columbia State Teacher of the Year, one of dozens awards she has received since 2001 that recognize her dedication and commitment to educational excellence. Among her many awards, she was the recipient of the prestigious National Alliance of Black School Educators Marcus Foster Distinguished Educator Award for 2009. Kimberly has developed numerous curricula and courses, created after-school programs, and has organized an HBCU college tour and journey to Ghana, West Africa for her students. She has served as a facilitator for several teaching workshops and has been a keynote speaker, a presenter, and lecturer for more than 30 industry panels on a wide range of educational topics, including a week-long lecturing series with Howard University's College of Arts and Sciences Freshman Seminar on Education, a practice of freedom and justice. 
In 2011 and 2012, she spent a total of four months as a Teach with Africa teacher, trainer, fellow, and was a member of the leadership team in the Leap Science and Math Schools in Johannesburg and Cape Town, South Africa. Also during 2011 and 2012, Kimberly served as a curriculum specialist for both the Mobile Learning Institute with the Pearson's Foundation and the Smithsonian Institute and the Smithsonian's African Art Cosmos Advisory Committee. A native of the District of Columbia, Kimberly is a graduate of Spelman College and a member of the National Alliance of Black School Educators, Pi Lambda Theta International Honor Society and Professional Association in Education, and the National Network of State Teachers of the Year. Ms. Kimberly Worthy, welcome on our broadcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. Listen, there's a lot I want to cover with you today. Um, but before we do that, big shout-out to Dr. Ina Patton. I know you're a friend, and Reverend Joanne McCoy for helping make this happen today. Yes, thank you so much. Those are my very dear friends. Absolutely. Ina and I went to Spelman together. Awesome, awesome. Mm-hmm. Kim, let's go ahead and get started. Um, give our listeners a chance to get to know you as the person. Tell us a little bit about what life was like growing up for you inside the District of Columbia. Okay, um, sure. Um, I grew up here. I moved here from actually Anchorage, Alaska. I was born in Alaska, and I moved here when I was three. And um, my parents were, I guess you can call them residuals of the Black Power Movement. Um, And so at three, they put me into a private school here called Roots Activity Learning Center, and um, Roots is an African-centered school. I think it was founded in 77, I believe. And um, so from there, I, was, I attended this school from three until middle school. And this was a very important um, part of my upbringing. Um, Roots, obviously African-centered, it taught me to know my, taught me my history as an African that was brought over here um, and an African-American um, it taught me to love my heritage, but on top of that, the way that we were taught was completely different than mainstream um, public school education. Um, our teachers understood our minds and how we learn our epistemological styles and um, and understood how our values um, had to play out in our learning environment. So I had a superior education at Roots. And coupled with that, the way that my parents raised me was to be um, an activist, an advocate, and to stand up for the rights of um, our people and people around the world. So um, from a very young age, I was always marching and protesting and getting arrested with my father outside of the South African embassy and just always knowing it's my responsibility to not only give back but to um, advocate um, for everyone. So that basically sums up my upbringing. I went to a a high school here called Edmund Burke, which is um, one of the top independent schools here in Washington, D.C., and it's a progressive school, and it, it, too, emphasized our social responsibility. And so with all of these different um, components, um, they made me into who I am today, um, a fearless advocate for um, our people and, and specifically our children. Awesome. Now, was that a public high school? 
No, it's a um, private school here in okay. Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, now, how did that lead you to identify your passion as becoming an educator? Um, so when I went to Spelman, I took a, a course at Morehouse called African Psychology. And um, while I was in that class, we had to read um, different scholarly works, and one was um, The Cultural Foundations for Teaching Black Children, and it was um, an article written by Dr. Edwin Nichols, who's an organizational psychologist here in Washington, D.C. I took this course back in 94, and um, when I was in the class, we were reading this article, I literally blurted out in class and said, you know, this is how I was taught, and I was referencing my experience at Roots. Mm-hmm. And um, in this particular article, he talked about African epistemological styles, African um, axiology or or values, and African logic, worldviews. And so he was describing specifically how this looks in the classroom and, and incorporating these three different um, aspects of education and I blurted out, this is how I was taught. I can give you concrete examples of what this looks like. And um, so from with that course and then another course I took, Advocacy for Urban Schools, I, took, um, I had to do student teaching. And when I did my student teaching, I had an AP history um, class at Southside High School in Atlanta. And, again, just incorporating... Um, those aspects that Dr. Nichols referenced, incorporating my um, experience at Roots and Edmund Burke and my parents and so on and so forth. Um, I did a phenomenal job that year uh, doing my student teaching, and I say that because it was such a natural fit for me. I was enjoying it um, it, with effortless ease, and I, I knew this is what I'm supposed to be doing because I wasn't uh trying extremely hard, but I had these amazing success stories, um, and it was just a natural fit for me, and I loved it. So that's how I knew it was my passion. You mentioned the word passion. I was literally uh, in the classroom yesterday talking with a group of freshman high school students, and we were talking about uh, the disparity in pay and where the unemployment lies and how it lies so much in those who haven't pursued training or pursued education, and I literally asked them the question, what career would you choose if your finances were taken care of and you could do it purely based upon passion? Mm-hmm. And to, to hear some of these responses of these young people was was, lit, was tremendous. Mm-hmm. Now, it sounds like you've been involved in education in some form for quite a while. Here's a chance for you to get on your soapbox. Why is education so important? Um, it's a it's a political tool. Um, so that disparity that you just spoke of, and and all of the inequalities that we see in in our country and throughout the world, they're able to be maintained uh, through ac- education or the lack thereof. So it's it's a political tool, and po- for me, political science, and that was my major at Spelman. The definition of political science is who gets what, when, why, and how. And um, and so when you look at yourself as a political agent and then you understand there's someone out there deciding if I'm going to get, you know, a certain pay, 
or if, or housing or food or quality of food um, and when I'll get this and how and so on and so forth, um, then you'll understand that education has a purpose. Um, it's not to get a good job. And, you know, a lot of people have been taught that. A lot of students, you know, if I ask them, why are you here? Why are you getting this education? To get a good job. And, um, and when that's the answer, there is no passion, and then there is no real purpose for it. But um, for me, I think it's extremely important because it can determine um, what you'll get in this world, in this lifetime, and your family, and your and generations to come. Um, so for me, it's, it's extremely important for those reasons. Excellent. And it's, I think it's important when you mention politics, that we have to distinguish the difference between politics and policy. Politics is what we see what's going on in Washington, D.C. right now with this shutdown and the furlough, you know, how personal agendas oftentimes, you know, get in the way of um, of progress. But when you think of <laughs> policy, those are literally the laws that, that govern us and that, you know, really um, determine who gets what and how we go about doing it. Let me segue a little bit. Talk to us about Howard Middle School. Um, I know it's a charter school there in, in the district that you work at. Tell us about it. How did it how did it evolve, and how did you get involved there? Okay. Um, well, Howard University Middle School of Mathematics and Science. It was founded in 2005. It's right on Howard's campus, um, across the street from. I mean, across from. Founders Library. Um, it was founded by um, former vice president of Howard University, Dr. Hassan Miner, who um, brilliant man, um, graduated from MIT and um, just completely devoted to, and also from Washington D.C., um, committed to um, the people of Washington D.C. And he wanted to provide a school that focused on. Um, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics um, for the students of Washington, D.C., and for all students, those um, that can afford to go to the independent schools and those that cannot, but he wanted um, to provide this opportunity for everyone. Um, He conducted some research and found that middle school is that critical era. Those are the critical years where students determine um, most of the time un- unconsciously determine whether or not they will continue on with school with an earnest effort or um, their subconscious makes the decision, you know, we may drop out if this is getting too difficult or I'm just totally disinterested. So he wanted to, to grab those students, um, expose them to the sciences and mathematics um, pique their interest, and provide them with numerous opportunities. Um, And so we opened the doors in 2005. I was actually hired that year, but not until January, January 2006. And um, I was the language arts teacher and then social studies teacher. And um, I've been teaching there ever since and um, contributing in many ways. Um, I've been on curriculum development, um, I've started many programs there, um, intervention programs, after-school programs, um, 
And with my history background, a lot of times, you know, people don't expect to see math and science in my um, curriculum, but this school um, has allowed me to incorporate that in a very natural, fluid manner. Um, It's natural for me because at Roots, Roots, uh, the name of their curriculum is African Center Interdisciplinary Multilevel Hands-On Science. And so they, from three until middle school, I learned from a holistic perspective um, with science being the uh, centerpiece. So each month we had a different science, and then all of our subjects were taught around that particular science of the month. And so for me, incorporating science was in history class was very easy. But it wasn't until we had a head of school, Ms. Sue P. White, who uh, was a phenomenal math teacher, Um, here in Washington, D.C., very well-known math teacher, Uh, she challenged me and said, well, where's the mathematics? And um, so I had to go back to the drawing board and and look at my curriculum and see creative ways where I can include mathematics in my curriculum. And once I did, the boys, uh, I did notice a dramatic change in their enthusiasm for my subject. And, And so then I was I got the inspiration one year to start a math fair, very similar to a science fair where they have to have a mathematical investigative question, um, but it was centered around a uh, history topic that I taught that year. And um, each year the students just take it to another level, you know, doing calculus and trig. I mean, they just go to another level just showing, you know, what they can do. So. That's what I've been doing there, and, and the school is a wonderful school. It's you know, we're just I guess eight years old now, and um, the students love it, teachers love it, and and we're pushing forward with all of our ups and downs. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's some some heavy lifting it has to take that mm-hmm. that goes on. Take us inside your classroom. Um, mm-hmm. Now I understand that your school has a lottery system and. Parents can apply from literally all over the district, and it, based upon that lottery, if they get in, um, they can move forward. So take us inside your classroom that, or some differences that might exist that can't happen or is not happening inside the public school setting. Um, well, we intentionally have um, a very African-centered approach where we, we want the children to learn um, who they are, not just, you know, we do teach our culture and, and, and so the students can feel pride in being African-American and African people. We do teach that. Um, but in addition to that, like I said earlier, um, we also teach the the students who they are politically in in Washington D.C. in this country in this world. So I incorporate um, each year. I start with six words: um, stereotype, prejudice, uh, inequalities, internalize, inferiority complex, and reject. And for sixth graders, these words appear to be out of their reach for them. But once I explore them with them and I get them to act out particular experiences that they have had or their parents have had, when we explore statistics together, 
um, they aren't foreign to them at all. In fact, it's just giving them, providing them the vocabulary for their experiences. And once they see that and, and can identify it and articulate it clearly, then they can understand why it's so important to get an education. You know, so once they realize that they are, you know, constantly being brainwashed that we are inferior people through many streams, you know, radio and um, television and, and music videos and so on and so forth, once they're equipped with that knowledge, then they understand their purpose for learning something new, learning something different and giving back to their community and, and identifying their passion so they know how they can give back to their community effectively, not just getting a job and, and paying bills every month, but identifying their unique talents and passions and and discovering how they can use those to make a change, to, to rid our society of these inequalities. And, um, and so we have the autonomy in our school to do this. Um, I don't have to stick with a particular curriculum that um, – our school district may want everyone in D.C. to teach. Um, so I have that freedom and to, to be creative and to be courageous, to bring in content that normally is not brought into uh, a normal uh, public school. Um, and so I'm allowing the students to tap into what they experience and how they feel about those experiences and um, – get some vocabulary for it, and then, you know, get fired up to make some changes in this world, whether they're, they do it by being an engineer or an activist, a lobbyist, or a lawyer. Whatever they choose to do, they just will learn that there's a purpose for it, a bigger purpose than themselves. Now, are the are the benchmarks similar to the public school? Are there tests that, you know, measure ability in language arts or math? Yes. That show that you know. Okay. Yes. Very and similar. Think, okay. Yeah. No, we we take the same tests as everybody else does. All the I got um, you. Pub, pub, all the public schools and public charter schools have to take the same test. And how are your students students faring? Um, so we are ranked out of all the middle schools in in DC. I think we're ranked num- either number four or number five. I cannot remember exactly, but it's either four or five. I know. I think. Uh, Washington Latin Academy, Deal, Hardy, and I think we might be next, or either DC Prep. It's one or the other. But um, so we are. Um, I think th- obviously proficiency is one hundred percent. I think we're at seventy nine percent. And I want to add some some context to that. Now I understand that your school has about eighty percent of its students receiving free or reduced lunch. Now, our broadcast is all about empowering others. Help someone out out there who might seem to believe that only a certain type of student can succeed. It seems like your school is helping to debunk that. Um, talk a little bit about that. What's, what's happening at your school? What's happening at our school? First and foremost, if there's a, you have to have a, a, a mental shift, a paradigm shift within your mind of how you see um, black children, and this is important even for black teachers to do because we have been bombarded for so many years in this country to believe that black people, black children are 
intellectually inferior. And and just in case you you don't believe that, they'll, they'll find some support out there. They'll give you the research. They'll give you the data. They'll show you the achievement gap. They'll say, see, look, look, they're down here. White people are up here. These kids are inferior. And so a lot of people believe it. A lot of people believe the stereotypes. A lot of people believe that black parents don't want their kids to succeed. Black parents don't care how they, their children do in school and and. And people really, really believe this. And so you have to start there, um, having difficult conversations around those beliefs and those myths, because many times people will never say that out loud. They'll never admit to that. And But what they don't understand is that it shows up in attitudes. It shows up in facial expressions. It shows up in the quality of a lesson plan or expectations of of a lesson plan. Um, and so it shows up in different ways. And you can ask the question, now, would you expect, would you do this at a Sidwell Friends School? Would you do this at, um, you know, a Georgetown Prep School? No, you wouldn't. And that shows your disparity and, and, and what you believe ch- uh, different children can do in this in this country. So it first starts with a mental shift and really believing in uh, the intellectual capacity of our students. And that takes a long time. And you have to bring in um, contrary research that shows the intellectual ability of our children um, and uh, research that has been done, psychological research that has been done for years that we just don't hear about in mainstream society. Um, So that's the first thing. And then once you conquer that and have a staff, faculty and staff, that really believes in our students, then it will show up in our classrooms. So we have a very rigorous curriculum, extremely rigorous curriculum. And um, we know that with this curriculum and these high expectations and the supports in place, um, and the supports include um, before school tutoring, um, in the middle of the day, free test tutoring, um, at the end of the day, we have homework scholars hall. We have Saturday school. Um, we have Howard University tutors that come and work with different children. Um, we have mentoring programs, a manhood training program. So we have a social worker on staff, two counselors, um, psychological. We have so many different um, components that tr- that touch the whole child um, and uh, make sure the child knows that. We are there for them, and we believe in them, but we have to put the supports in place um, to go along with the rigorous curriculum. But um, having an a, a inferior curriculum for black children is unacceptable, and even though we have the Common Core standards throughout the country, many times you go into these schools and we have these Common Core standards, but we don't have the classes that these students need, like calculus or whatever. We don't have these rigorous classes um, for these students to um, uh, achieve these Common Core standards. So um, our school provides that. So we have a sixth grade that's taking pre-algebra, seventh grade algebra, eighth grade geometry, preparing them for what the new expectations are. Um, It's no longer ninth grade is algebra. And so um, we are preparing our students for that shift and just providing that rigor that um, other schools provide for their children. Now, Kim, I know you work in a charter school, but I can 
if I had could use my imagination here, I can. It's like I can hear a, a parent saying, "Okay, uh, my child doesn't go to a charter school. Charter schools might not even be um, in my area." And I'm not saying, you know, that charter schools, period, are the answer completely. Um, there's, but there's choices. There's there's opportunities for different ways to get there in order to be successful. Help some parents out right now who are saying, you know, I'd love for my child to have a teacher like you, but it might not happen. What can parents do to better support their children academically um, and, and, and personally? Um, well, um, <laughs> parents can do it. I mean, this question can go on for hours. Parents can do a lot. Um, I, I would, you know, I would start with the television. I just think that the television is, is I mean, there are some great shows, but, um, you know, allowing students or children to just have full access to television um, does them a disservice because of the subliminal messages that are being taught. Um, to our students, to our children about who we are and our inferiority. Um, but then also it takes away from the love of reading. And reading is just so essential in building vocabulary and building context for different situations. Um, and reading is just so critical. Um, so allowing a child to to learn to love to read early on by, you know, turning off the TV, turning off the video games, um, and exposing them first to, to literature and reading, and then letting them, you know, watch movies later on or, or play video games. But essentially um, allowing, providing an opportunity for children to learn to love to read. But then also... Um, talking to them about mathematics. So, you know, cooking with the chil- with children and um, showing them, you know, fractions and, and measurements and, and, you know, going to grocery stores and just speaking it with mathematical language and so on and so forth. Um, but then if you, you know, those are just practical things that we can do all day, every day. But then uh, there are, you know, online programs that help our students, um, and, you know, making them aware of what's going on around the world, um, having them read world newspapers and um, having discussions. A lot of my homework assignments, um, the students have to discuss with their parents and then have some questions. And um, and that is that is my attempt to get the, the parents involved in their, their children's um, education. For example, this weekend I sent home a letter that Christopher Columbus wrote to um, Queen Isabella about his plans for the natives that he ran into in Española, and um, and they have to read it with their parents, and then I gave them, you know, a guided assignment that they have to do. But um, each year I give this to my students, and you know the responses are amazing. I mean, some things I may agree with, some things I may not, and that's not the point. The point is the children are working with their parents and discussing. Um, having these discussions about um, racism with their parents and colonialism and so on and so forth Um, and using words that their parents are, you know, they'll email me like, wow, my child 
is talking about capitalism, and I didn't even know they knew about it. And so just providing those opportunities for them um, to discuss. Um, Building um, background knowledge is important. A lot of these tests that our students are mandated to take um, are, are, we all know, are culturally biased, and they're, they're based on background knowledge and experiences that people in our, some people in our, our society experience and other people don't experience. Um, but it does not mean that our students are, you know, intellectually inferior. It just means I haven't experienced that. So um, exposing them, taking them places, you know, doing other things besides um, what we, we are kind of accustomed to because we live these really busy lives. And I, I do too. And I have a daughter myself and you know, we go to school and we come home, we do homework, we cook dinner, we go to bed, and, you know, it's this really rote lifestyle now, but we have to kind of push through that and get creative with our children and um, expose them to as much as possible. Yeah, and it, in many ways, I'm a firm believer that, you know, that powerful teacher in the classroom has a makes a huge difference. I think we've got to have the best and brightest in the field of education. And I say that unapologetically. Um, I think we're reaching a, a point now in our in our country, in our society, where we've got to make sure that we are putting the best teacher in the classroom for our students. I recently saw a statistic that said, and this is from the Department of Education, one-third of our teachers leave the profession after three years, mm-hmm. one-half after five years. We've got to turn this around. Having teachers in and out of the classroom, you know, not building that consistency is having a harmful effect on our students. Tell me about your experience in the profession of teaching. How have you been able to remain in it so long? And talk about the need of having that strong teacher in the classroom. Because I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm surprised that, you know, you haven't been tapped on the shoulder and say, come on up to administration or but you're still teaching. How, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, like I said in the very beginning, my it's my passion. And um, I did leave the classroom, actually. Um, in 2009, when I won the D.C. Teacher of the Year Award, I was offered an opportunity to go to school in Florida. And it was then when I realized how connected, emotionally connected I was to the classroom. I knew that I was emotionally connected. I knew how happy I was over the years and how I felt like at times I was just in a trance. I was just so happy and just I I didn't even know what time it was or anything. But I didn't know until I left the classroom, and that only lasted for six months. I immediately got back into the classroom because um, it's just a source of, my 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 happiness, my um, purpose, and um, it's just a big part of my life. Um, I love giving the children as much as possible on a daily basis, and um, I love seeing the outcomes, what happens after a year or two with um, me and my colleagues and what we've done with our students. And, and I, to this day, I'm Facebook friends with my students that I taught my first year in Brooklyn and to see what they're doing and I'm just a proud mommy every single day and um so it it is my passion and I feel like 
this is what we should look for when we're hiring. But even before then, this is what we should um, prepare teachers for in the in the teacher preparation programs. We have to make sure that, um, and this should be a part of the evaluation, are you passionate about this? Are you dedicated um, to this? And there are ways to pick that out. There are ways to discern that in our um, new teachers. Um, and But then also once we get new teachers, we have to give them the proper support because um, I was very lucky in that regard. <clears throat> when I first started teaching in Brooklyn, I had a phenomenal administration team. Um, Dr. uh, Rhonda Taylor was my principal, and she was the youngest principal of New York City schools history. And and then we had three vice principals, all of them professional, knowledgeable, excellent, experienced. And they modeled for me. They they showed me. They were open and, and, and... um, really guided me my first year, but supported me, and um, and that is important. A lot of new teachers go into schools where they're not supported, and so that is one of the reasons why they leave so early is because you don't want to be in a career when you don't feel successful. I have felt successful, and the main reason was my first two years, I had unbelievable support. And when I hear what other teachers are experiencing their first two years, I feel really bad for them because and then I'm empathetic. I can understand. If I wasn't successful and then I didn't have support either, I would probably leave as well. So um, we have to provide that um, support. But in our teacher teacher programs, we have to prepare them for the holistic child, um, the whole child, not just, you know, writing a lesson plan, but um, teaching them cognitive and non-cognitive skills. Um, How do you teach the non-cognitive? How do you um, get a child to be intrinsically motivated to learn um, and to persevere when times get rough? Those are also the skills that need to be taught in our teacher ed programs. Um, and, and, And really, really emphasize the mentality that you're bringing. We have to get into the heads and the experiences, and that's new for teacher ed programs. Really getting into how people feel about black children, you know, those will be difficult difficult conversations, but they have to be had because um, whether you're white or black, yellow or green, people have ideas of black children. Yeah, and and I want to bring Richmond Hill on and Michael Fordham to to join in this conversation as well. Um, I had a lingering question in my mind. I, I I asked the question to myself: What are the school districts around the world doing that are producing such positive results? And I did a little bit of personal research, and I I looked at Sweden. Um, why are they always in the top tier? as far as, you know, performance and test scores and all of that. And when I dug a little bit deeper, they value education as a society. Mm-hmm. You can't get up in front of the classroom unless you've demonstrated the ability to be a master teacher. Mm-hmm. You don't get a shot out the gate. So I'm. why do I say that? Because the need for supporting teachers is huge. Mm-hmm. And without that support, we suffer as a country. We suffer as a nation. You talked earlier about um, 
STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And I saw a story that talked about how um, there's a huge employment need for students in these careers, but we're not able to fill those positions because we're not in the ball game. Um, Richmond, I know you guys are doing a lot with STEM over at Northern Virginia Community College. You're a counselor there and also a um, assistant professor. Tell us, what are some of your thoughts and reflections after you've heard, after you've been listening in on this conversation? You know, um, Michael, this has been a just uh, an awesome conversation, and I'm just sitting there thinking, wow, if we can, could clone Mrs. Worthy and just have her all over the country <laughs> and all over the world uh, to just um, educate our youth and also talk with other educators about becoming master educators. And, Michael, one thing you mentioned um, uh, before I go to kind of just um, – making some points about Ms. Worthy's earlier comments. You mentioned um, Sweden and other countries. What are they doing um, to ensure that um, their students are educated and they have the best and the brightest in the in the classroom and 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 for us to have the best and brightest in the classroom uh, which we want um, we're going to have to make sure that we pay and support our teachers as Ms. Worthy mentioned at a rate at which we value them we value education and unfortunately in our nation um, when budgets are getting cut, the first budget to often get cut is an education budget, and um, that is at the very core of of um, what we're trying to produce as a nation. And, and I think that's very harmful. And we have to have supportive administrators and support, um, you know, superior teacher induction programs in order to develop and keep the best and brightest. But we uh, we say, and I think it's lip service for our nation oftentimes, that education is important, but we have to put our money where our mouths are and and and, and make sure that we support it um, financially. Um, because I see oftentimes many excellent teachers come into the field and they have the passion and they have the drive and the motivation and focus and they really, really struggle, especially in the early years, with all of the additional uh, responsibilities and, 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 and to be a good teacher, and I know Ms. Worthy knows this, to be a, a really good teacher and to design those lesson plans that uh, extend learning and, and, and um, develop critical thinking, it's far beyond what you're able to do uh, those two hours that you stay after school. You know, it goes into the yeah. evenings. It goes into the weekends. And uh, it, it it can be quite a bit. And so I think we have to definitely um, make sure that, that we provide the support and, uh, and, and the pay if we really want to value uh, our teachers and, and have the best and brightest. Um, she also talked a great deal about um, – raising the social consciousness of our young black children. And, and Kim, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And also helping them to understand that, that education opens the doors to independence and liberation. And that's what I heard you saying, Kim. It opens the doors to independence and liberation. And, and, and you spoke about raising our expectations of even the intellectual capacity for our black students. And we have to have high expectations to yield those, those high results. And, and, and we have to look at our young people. And I'm so glad you mentioned this, Kim, because Michael has heard me often talk about the asset model as opposed to a deficit model, looking at what's wrong and, and what's not going well, as opposed to looking at those students that are succeeding in those school districts and schools that, that are, are having positive results and, and duplicating those models in other places because it's working. And um, we know what's wrong, but we also know what works. And with the right supports and strategies, our children succeed just as well or even better than other groups, and I think we know this. And we have to get 
everybody to understand that. And, and Kim, what you said, it's so important, even our teacher education programs, to have those courageous discussions around race and, and our opinions and attitudes and feelings about black children. Um, Kim, you bring a vast life and educational experience to the classroom. And I think that's why, uh, you know, and it sounds like you understood at an early age the importance of traveling and studying other cultures uh, and, and all of this coming together to make you an educator that that knows how to lead your students on this what I call a culturally relevant learning journey. Um, you know, it's, it's evident in what you mentioned with your discussion-based learning and making sure that students are well-versed in current affairs and societal issues. And so we've definitely got to continue to raise the social consciousness of our young black children. Definitely. Michael, uh, you want to join in on this? I, I think you had a question for Kim as well. Yeah, um, Kim, I actually heard um, something very interesting because you, you did talk about content that you're able to teach that's not available in the public school systems, and I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. And also, um, you talked about the, the fallacy we have about the ability for African-American children to learn and excel at the same level as other cultural groups. And um, I was wondering if you could share with us some of the sources of the research that would, you know, sort of rectify that misunderstanding. Um, okay, so the first question um, – wait, can you repeat that for me again? I'm sorry. Yeah, the first question was you have an opportunity to teach oh, content, content that would not right. be available. Well, I, I wouldn't say that it's not available. <laughs> I would say that it's um, – that – Maybe it's not wanted in certain schools or allowed, mm-hmm. um, but I definitely I don't teach anything that's it, that's hidden at all. Um, I teach uh, so I, I'm a social studies teacher, sixth grade social studies. Um, DCPS standards require that I teach world cultures and geography. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I'm not I don't make up my curriculum. What I do is I I add content that maybe most teachers won't teach their children. So when I bring in um I teach geography, of course, I start with theories and and um big bang theories and and then bring in um African myths and 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 different cultures throughout Africa and and their stories on origin, creation myths and so on and so forth. Um, and so we can um, do some compare and contrast with that, and, and mm. you know, and so that's something that I do. That it's out there. I just don't know if everyone would do that. Um, when we get into cultures, I I teach the students about um, the first humans on on the planet and where they originated, and what culture was like for these early humans in Africa. Um, there's there the the early. Um, uses of um, the Lebombo bone and the Shango bone of mathematics and tracking the phases of the moon and the menstrual cycle and so on and so forth so that they can see that Africans, our people, have been um, using mathematics and science for thousands of years. That that bone is like 80,000 years old. <laughs> so we've been, you know, masters of mathematics and science for years. And so... Um, so I, I, I go through the migration um, of humans around the world um, and study different cultures, especially in Africa, so that they know where a lot of our mannerisms and, and the way we speak 
that you know mainstream society has us embarrassed about if we pronounce the th like a t or a d or you know down down the street and and the mainstream society makes us feel like you know something is wrong with us no actually in the 14 different african languages that were brought over here the th was pronounced like t or d and so to expose them to that is it's empowering because it says okay no there's nothing wrong with me but i do need to learn I need to be well-versed in all these different languages, knowing, you know, I am living in this country. I know how language is a tool for oppression as well, and I do teach that. So it's not content that's not available to others. It's just I choose to incorporate it so that it's relevant to to my students' experiences here and so that they understand you're not inferior by the way you speak or your your beautiful name that is resembling the African names that we were once called, but we were not allowed to call, be called on on the plantation. So I give them a context for everything that has been um, institutionalized here to make us feel inferior. And and there's so many things: our hair, you know, our um, facial features, our languages, our clothes, you know, wearing lots of jewelry. I give them the cultural context for for wearing all this gold and Trinidad James, you know, when I I can bring that in and say, but wait a minute, let me tell you how culturally relevant this is and historically relevant this is to our people. And so it's just content that's there. I don't think it's just – I just think that I choose to bring it in. Um, Now, in terms of the research, I don't have that with me right now, but I can definitely provide that for you after this. Um, But there – and I hate that I don't, but I know – um, if you reference Amos Wilson and um, Dr. Uh, Edwin Nichols and um, even Leslie Fenwick, there's so many um, scholars out there and researchers out there that have um, this information. When you study, you know, black babies when they're born and give them psychological tests, black babies and white babies who scores higher on those psychological tests, those intelligence tests, with the movement of the eyes and so on and so forth, the black baby does. And the black children actually score higher on intelligence tests until they get into the public school system. Once they start getting mm-hmm. tested in the public school system, the scores go down. And mm-hmm. um, and a lot of that has to do with how we're being taught. Is It's not congruent with how our brains uh, learn, how they work. Um and also, you can't take racism out of the equation. You have to always remember, even with the foods and, and, and you know, where our children are living and the disparities in all of their conditions and, and the, the candy and the chips and the, what they're feeding their brains, all of that is connected. All of that has an impact um, on behavior, on, on academic performances. Um, and so there's so many different um, components to this. Um, but the research is out there. There's research on melanin um, that is really important to understand how melanin um, contributes to our intellectual and cognitive abilities um, in the pineal gland and the pituitary gland and what melanin actually does and how we can kill melanin with the different chemicals that we put into our body. Um, and so, but melanin is definitely um, contrib- uh, a contribution to um, how our brain works and how our brain actually, until we get into the public school systems, 
um, our brains are actually scoring higher on intelligence tests. And, um, again, we'll have to uh, communicate after this show because I can provide some other research on how um, intelligence tests are changed and altered once we start, once we master it, once we get, you know, 100% or whatever, then they're just changed um, automatically. So, And one word as as you're talking stands out for me, and that is self-identity. Once a child feels affirmed Mm -hmm. and has a comfortable feel on who they are, then they're going to be able to better empower others. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I got to be even-handed here. I've been in the public school system for years now. There is a lot of good that is going on in the public school system. There are mm-hmm. teachers that get up every day, are making it happen, are affirming right. children. At the same time, I'm, I'm so glad to have your voice on today because maybe a parent is listening to this and saying, you know, my child goes to a really good school, but based upon the structure and the setting, I've got to supplement some of this mm-hmm. information, you know, historically. I'll never mm-hmm. forget it, being in the 11th grade history class. And I, my a teacher, um, nice lady, she said, you know, we have some African-American books here, um, African-American history books that we might get the opportunity to look at this year. And it's almost like that was just such a shot in the arm to me. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, man, I get to actually learn about some people who look like me. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. the not-so-good part of the story was we never got around to it. Right. Yeah, and that's right. what I'm saying. Like, you it, know, it, we it, never it, got it, around to it, but it's there. <laughs> it's there. That's what I'm saying. It's there. Um, I've taught, before I came to this charter school, I've always taught in public schools. So I okay. know of the great work. My first school that I ever taught in, um, teacher, uh, student teacher position was a public school. My first school that I ever taught in was a public school in Brooklyn. I taught in Las Vegas in a public school. I taught, I've taught. i taught mostly in public schools. And okay. um, so I know of the great things people are doing. That's why I said it's not that the content's not there. It's just it's who chooses to incorporate it or not. Yeah. you got to be intentional about it. Mm-hmm. Michael, yeah. it, now, go ahead, Mike. Oh, was it Michael? Yeah, this is Richmond. If, if I yeah. could, uh, I think Kimberly hit on a great point. And, uh, and, and, and Kimberly, you obviously in your classroom, you have become a partner with your students in critical thinking. Uh, and, and that is so important nowadays. And, and so many students in our country have mastered the science of memory and just the ability to recall facts from, from class. I mean, that is the way to success in most forms of schooling nowadays, that whether it's memorization of vocabulary cards or overhead notes or outlines, et cetera, just to get those, you know, uh, those A marks. And, and what we don't realize is that this is not only ineffective, but it's, it's very, very harmful. And um, Brazilian-born educator um, Paulo Freire, he talks about the banking concept of education and explaining that students in the system are simply receptacles that are to be filled, you know, with the content of the teacher's narration simply. And, and you can see, Kimberly, I'm so excited in your classroom. You're not doing that. You're literally taking them on the journey of learning with you. And then, you know, so many times in our 
society, we expect these receptacles that have been filled to regurgitate information on a class, uh, you know, in class or on a test or a quiz. Um, you know, anything that requires the answer word for word, you know, what the teacher has said. And in a banking classroom, the teacher is the authority. The students are oppressed. And yeah. the more students work at deposits and trust it to them, the less they develop that critical consciousness that is so needed. And so you, Kimberly, have done an excellent job. And, and, and many of our educators are doing a good job, but we've got to get it more and more that problem-posing education of focusing on concepts that have a practical application of right. the theories or the concepts learned in the classroom. And that is what you're doing when you're sending your, your children home to talk with their parents uh, mm -hmm. uh, about what you mentioned early. And students have to be able to see, you know, uh, that what they learn in the classroom can help them change the world. Raising mm -hmm. that social consciousness, you know, when students are given problems, as opposed to only information, the process becomes less alienated and, 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 and much more practical. And that's what I see. I see your students literally coming alive in classroom in the classroom because it's that practical. It's, Mrs. Worthy has said this, and she's shared with us this, and she's asked us questions, and this is what we discuss, and this is how it connects. This right. is how it connects to Obamacare. This is how it connects mm -hmm. to what's going on in Darfur. This is what it connects to what's going on in Syria. Right. That is just Excellent. I commend you. And we've got to get Thank more you. and more of that, that problem-posing education, that practical application in the classroom. Yes. Thank let's, you, let's, 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 I want to have you. we got just a few minutes left here, and I want to come back to that point. Um, when a student feels affirmed and validated, they're going to be more likely to, to seek the affirmation and validation of others. I believe that. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, Regardless to color, they'll fight against injustice anywhere for anyone. That yep. takes the you know the, the racial part out of it in that context. Talk a little bit about what you've seen in our closing minutes here about um, how students have become more civically engaged and uh, promote social justice. I, well, I, immediately when when you were just speaking, I thought of a situation that occurred this summer. I was doing um, a program with Pearson Foundation with other phenomenal teachers from around the country, and um, and we one activity we had to do involved going to the um, Holocaust Museum here in Washington D.C. So we took the metro, and while we were on the metro, um, I saw one of my former students, and um, so we hugged. Hi, Maxine. Hi, Miss Wendy. So we're talking and. And I said, yeah, well, these are my um, friends, teacher friends, and we're headed to the Holocaust Museum. And she said, oh, I'm going there now. She said, um, I work there. I am in charge of um, uh, some programs with, with schools in Washington, D.C., and, and raising awareness of social justice and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And um, I said, really? And I was like, well, we have um, student tour guides. I wonder if you want. And it turned out she ended up being our tour guide. And I had no idea. But on the way there, she said, in front of my teacher friend, she said, you know this is your fault, Miss Worthy. And I said, huh? And she said, I, ever since I had your class, I've just been on this whole social justice, eradicating the ills of the world and inequalities and da 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 and, and also I have the students do a six-month-long um, family history project involved going to courthouses and the archives and so on and so forth. And... Um, and she is a, a biracial uh, uh, young woman. She's um, white and black. Her her mother is um, Jewish, 
and um, and so she said because of my class, she, this is her passion, and so she came to our school to speak on um, the Darfur situation, and she's just this is her life. Um, and then I have another student um, who I named Ayira, and um, she is a phenomenal poet, and she has her own um, albums out that she sells and I've purchased, um, and she speaks on the inequalities and the social injustices in um, our country and throughout the world, and they're both now in college and um, pursuing their goals in life, and so um, those two just came to mind when you asked me about that, but so many people are doing things, and um just by learning what their passions are. Awesome, awesome. Richmond Hill, we thank you for being on. And Kimberly Worthy, let me say, I believe you blessed our audience today. And we hope you'll be a partner of our show. I would love to, definitely. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much for what you're you're doing. You're welcome. And thank you for inviting me. So proud of you. Anytime. Glad to have you. Thank you, Michael. Okay. Thank you. Michael, any parting shots? No, we're out of time. <laughs> awesome. Let's close it out. <laughs> it's the brown bag.